it's okay, and we actually have a duty, I think, to ask the hard questions. And if a syndicator pushes back when you ask questions, I wouldn't use that. I wouldn't go with that syndicator because they should be an open, transparent book about, hey, here's who I am. Here are my weaknesses, yeah. and here's what I've done to mitigate my weaknesses. Here are my strengths and why I'm so good at it. And here's the protection to you. This is what we're doing to protect you. Now, syndications don't have collateral for the limited partners. Um, so I would want to also make sure, okay, if you're, let's say it's a lending fund, you're syndicating a lending fund, I want to make sure that the fund itself has the right collateral. Does the fund have a first lien position on these properties or not? You know what I mean? So I would want the, the syndicator to answer some detailed questions about the assets in the fund, the paperwork in the fund, the syndicator's experience, the syndicator's team, their weaknesses yeah. and their strengths. All right, everybody, welcome to the Bill and Cap Show. Today we have somebody uh, very, very interesting, and pardon me, I'll be looking at my notes here because Mary Hart has uh, an experience and a bio that is like incredibly impressive. So she's a private lender, active real estate investor with commercial properties, vacation rentals. She has some farmland. I guess you're a uh, amateur farmer, mm -hmm. a realtor, a 1031 intermediary, and oh, just, you know, casually, you're a lawyer as well. So Mary, absolutely <laughs> yeah. great to have you on the show. Uh, we were talking before the show and oh my gosh, there's so much I want to dig into here with with your views on wealth and kind of like the way that you pass along wealth. And it sounds like you have extensive experience with that from the legal side and then, you know, this real estate side as well. So yes. but let's just jump into, uh, we'll start at the very beginning. Um, okay. Tell me about kind of the very first steps into real estate. So I think the very first thing I became an, an accidental real estate investor, an accidental single family home real estate investor when I was living in Alaska. I'd been there for about 20 years. I'd had all my kids there. I was married to my first husband. We decided to move back to North Carolina because our parents were getting older, but we weren't sure we wanted to stay away from Alaska forever. So we didn't want to sell our beautiful home that we had constructed. So we just rented it out. And I'd never been a landlord before, didn't, had never thought about being a landlord before, but it worked out really well, had great tenants. And those tenants found me the next tenants and the next tenants. And we stayed in North Carolina. And then I became an accidental commercial building investor when someone wanted me to uh, help a friend of theirs buy a building. And anyway, I ended up buying it with her and opening a law practice in it. And then I became an accidental private lender when someone asked me to loan money. And then that happened. So anyway, started out just all very accidental. And it all worked very well and drive very well with my legal business. And sure. then just grew from there because I liked it. Yeah, I, I mean, I see a lot of similarities here. You know, you group these like kind of standard W-2 or I, I guess you were kind of doing your own business as well, you know, being a lawyer. And so you have <laughs> compared to you know me as a doctor, it, you have more probably business experience, right? Because the yeah. legal stuff kind of is, is in itself. But like I see similarities there, you know, you kind of like mm -hmm. going about this, this very and it's a high earning potential, right? Like you can stick right, right into that legal mm -hmm. sphere same and this is the problem i guess you could say a lot of doctors have too is they're just yeah. like you know i could stay in this single job but then you say 
okay, you accidentally <laughs> fell into it. But if you look at your examples, they're classic examples, yeah. right? Kind of the classic. pseudo house hack or like, you know, mm -hmm. the house that you lived in. You're like, well, I guess I'll just take it. Yeah. And, and yeah. that was first story too. I mm -hmm. bought a house in residency and then, oh yeah, I guess ah, maybe I'll just try the landlord thing. Actually, I rented mm -hmm. out a room even before that. Yeah. And then the commercial uh, where you were one of your tenants in that first commercial property. Yes. Yes. And when I bought the building, I bought it with a partner and she was an architect. So she had a suite. I had a suite. Um, and then we rented out two or three other suites. I can't remember. I think three. Yeah. And, uh, and eventually my law office expanded, take over the whole business. And I bought out the architect partner. So I kept that building and ran the law firm until I realized that my real estate investments made me a heck of a lot more money than my law firm made me without working. But my, those dollars work while I was asleep. And so yeah. then I shut down yeah. the law firm in 2019 and have just been a consultant since then. So, and an educator oh, and my own investor. I mean, yeah. 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 So beautiful. I don't practice I, anymore as a lawyer. Maybe you just practice a little bit. Just Yeah. <laughs> well, the, 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 what I love about consulting is everybody gets the same lawyer brain, but I'm not on yeah. the hook for legal malpractice. I don't have to carry that massive insurance policy and I'm no longer a glorified hourly worker because I just take a consulting client if they really need me and I really feel like doing it. When I was practicing law, I wasn't in control of my own schedule. My goodness, we were so busy that it was just, you know, yeah. if I wasn't sitting in my law firm, I wasn't getting paid. So I didn't like that. Yeah. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm not a lawyer, but like, you know, from the consumer side, I find this, the legal industry very interesting, right? Because from the consumer <laughs> side, like consuming legal you know, resources or consuming like legal, um, skills, whatever, however you want to put it, like you, you often want that consulting role, but a lot of lawyers, mm -hmm. you know, the equivalents in computer programming, they say, Oh, you're, you're just a code jockey. Like meaning they just like bang yeah. out code and that's all they really do. And it's like, okay, you want me to build a website? I'll build it. But it's like, well, actually what I really need is to, you know, consult with a web designer that not only can build a website, but they can tell me, well, this is going to cost this much. And like, I, it seems like for your scale of your business, mm -hmm. you don't need to consume that. You don't need a $20,000 website. Right. And you know, that's hard to find in a lawyer, mm -hmm. I think, because um, a yeah. lot of lawyers are really good at the law. Same with a mm -hmm. doctor, right? But they're not good at always seeing the big picture. But then right. you know, someone like yourself, who's a consultant, like oftentimes that's what I want in yeah. my lawyer. And, and and that's how I got into consulting, actually, because when I was starting to phase out and deciding I didn't want to practice law, people that I had worked with actually kind of I'd met in all walks of life around the country. They're like, no, nobody understands this from a real estate investor standpoint. We can't find a lawyer that knows tax law and business yeah. law and state yeah. law and, you know, self-directed IRA law and all that. And so I kind of became the accidental consultant, like I'd become the accidental investor. And I realized that my job as the consultant was to be like, if you were standing at the beginning of a rat maze, you knew where you yeah. were and you saw your goal at the far end of the rat maze, but you didn't know how to get there. I was the eye in the sky that can say, turn left, turn right, go straight. And because I was no longer in that one or two hour meeting time you know, restriction, I could have people to my farm for like two days and we would dig into everything they had, all their entities, all their trust, whatever it was, and come up with the plan, you know, like the general who then gives it to the lawyers, the marching order. Okay, yeah. go execute yeah. this. And, and so it worked out really well because I could do it more holistically and more in depth. And I think in the real estate and note investor world, that was very necessary for some people because their lawyers didn't yeah. 
understand that piece of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's huge. Right. And you mentioned, you know, delegating those tasks, right? It's like, you, you don't have to be the actual one. Mary Hart right. doesn't have to be the person that scribbles the exact verbiage right. and onto the document. And, you know, sometimes you go to a lawyer and that's kind of what you get, like nitpicking, tiny, like right. minutia. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, no, man, I think the real risk here isn't this slight verbiage. It's like the whole, there's a hole or right. it's from the mitigating risk standpoint. Obviously right. there's a lot more to, yeah. to what the law does for us. And this gets into like, you know, a very meta discussion, but like, what is the point of a lawyer? Why do you contact a lawyer? It's not just right. risk mitigation, you know, it's planning. No, it's planning, planning. It's so much more. And planning simply takes time that a lot of lawyers, when they're just got so many clients all the time, they just don't have the time to sit down and look at, the, are your entities talking to each other? Do you have your beneficiary designation set up the right way? They might draft the trust, but they don't have the time to sit down and make sure it's executed properly and all the moving parts are working together. So that's what I do as a consultant. And then I teach, uh, I help people issue spot what they need to be looking for through a mentorship, mentorship platform that I have. And we do a lot more than that. But the estate planning and asset protection planning is such a huge piece of it. And I think people really appreciate that information. Yeah. They get to visit your farm too, or is that, is that I have set it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have that. We've done that more with the consulting. I split my time right now between my farm in Kentucky and a house on Lake Champlain in upstate New York. That's where I am today. Awesome. Um, so, but when I do consulting, people can either come up here to New York and be on the lake and go out on the boat and all that, or we go down to the farm or we just do it over zoom, whatever works for them. And then my mentorship platform is mostly all Zoom based. And then I teach in person around the country just as I'm asked to by other people right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's in- Tell me a little, let's dig into kind of that, that mentorship and your views on like this, what do you call it? Wealth management or what's the way to frame well, it? Well, I, I called it the alternative investing movement or AIM for short, A-I-M yeah. for alternative investing movement. And we call the platform the AIM Higher Academy. And really it started out as, well, let's aim higher towards <clears throat> financial freedom or the creation of wealth. And let's aim higher towards providing a legacy to our family or our charities or whatever. And then ultimately in my mind, I would like it to be, let's aim higher in every category of life, you know, mental health, physical health, spiritual health, relationships, intellect, everything. But right now it started off as a platform for all levels of investors from newbie to sophisticated to teach concepts surrounding just alternative investing as a whole, anything other than stocks, bonds, cash. So we have Zoom calls uh, twice a month, and sometimes it's just Q&A. Sometimes it's me teaching. Sometimes we have another presenter teach. Um, And then we have a library of, you know, 50-plus hours so far of educational material, uh, maybe even more now. But anyway, just trying to help people create wealth with the goal of financial freedom, time freedom, how you live the life you want to live. And that definition is very different for every person, right? Some might want to live in a cabin in the woods, and it takes – $10,000 a year. Somebody might want a lifestyle that takes $10 million a year. I don't know. So we're just trying to teach those. You might not even know, right? You might not know like exactly all these options. I, I met with somebody yesterday. It was actually one of my, one of my friends in in the Philippines and they, um, they had all their, they were buying their very first house. I know this is like early stage, right? Mm -hmm. But like they're buying their first house and they had all their money in cash. That's it. They're all their assets. What's like, mm-hmm. well, that's a pretty simple, you know, one, what do they call mm-hmm. it? Like single portfolio yeah. uh, or what a single investment portfolio. But like, yeah. you know, that's not 
a good idea right. in general right. to hold mm-hmm. all your money in one single asset, no matter what that asset is. And, yep. you know, you take that very early stage and you kind of you go through the second stage. I think framing this is like your kind of standard, you know, max out, you know, it's like what's the index card retirement type uh, right. concept where it's like max out your IRA, max out your, you should say like tax advantage savings accounts or retirement mm-hmm. accounts, your your IRA, max out your 401k if you work for a job, whatever, self-directed, you know, don't carry tons of debt. And, and then, you know, you kind of go on from there. And then you take what you're kind of saying is like, okay, that to me white coat investor is a a, a classic within the right. industry which kind of goes through that like the basics of of personal finance but then kind of what you're saying is like okay well there's there's another stage and then right. a good friend of mine have been talking about this lately we both have young children and we're like how do we you know because we understand the basics of personal finance and Sure, we might make some like risky personal plays too, but we like understand that, you know, it's like I Mm -hmm. hold X amount of my portfolio in crypto. It's like, okay, like I I have some speculation there, but I like understand that play, you know, right? Um, and, but then what's the next stage, right? Like, and we are talking about this, like, yeah, maybe our knowledge isn't like, I don't fully understand the big picture yet. I want to be able to pass along, you know, these tools, right? Because, right. you, these assets that you build and maintain, these businesses, the actual stocks you hold, all these different assets, they're, they're a tool that can be used. And like, how do I take that and do it the right way? Not just legally, but I worry about like, how do I teach my boy, baby Cap, little baby Jordan, how do I teach him that like these assets that I'm going to pass along, you know, they should be seen as tools. Like, I don't want him to just mm-hmm. be you hear about the trope of the surgeon's right. kid. Yeah, know, the trust fund baby. Yeah, trust I want him to baby. be trust fund baby. I don't think this is getting into rant mode, but like I don't think it's as simple as like appreciating the value of hard work. No, it's because not. It, that's that's good, but like I've had many people on this show, really hard workers who have like worked themselves and I'm a hard worker, yeah. right? A lot of doctors are they work themselves to the to the mm-hmm. bone, the bone, and they're burnt out. And like, it's not just hard work. Like yeah. there's something else there to it. So go on. A, well, sorry, that, that was my rant. But no, I mean, I think that's, that. that's great. And I think about it all the time because I have three sons who are all grown up now, 23, 28, and almost 31. I don't know how the heck that happened, by the way, because they were young just yesterday. <laughs> Somehow, I'm not. Like I'm not getting older. I don't know how they're getting older. But anyway, you're like um, you're like 22 still. I that's yeah, I yeah. Know. You're you're very sweet. <laughs> I, I hit the big 6-0 in July, so that'll be interesting. Oh well, you um, look great. Yeah. You look great. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, anyway, so I think about it a lot, and I started this mentorship platform initially when my kids were. I just started a year ago, but I started it to think, okay, how can I inspire my kids and other young people to think about the life cycle of wealth? How do you make it? How do you grow it? How do you protect it? How do you pass it on? That whole life cycle. And in fact, we offer scholarships to some people, a certain number of scholarships for people under 25 who get a year free in our platform because of that. And I think that the reason I started focusing on the alternative investing space, partly because I am an alternative investor, but I'm also a stock investor, But I realized that I no longer think that traditional model of save your way to retirement in a 401k or whatever works. You know, save it all up, build up this massive stock portfolio, take 4% out every year. That doesn't work. You have to find a way. You either have to build a massive portfolio, 10, 20, 30 million dollars, 
or live an impoverished lifestyle or you, when you're retired or you find a way to have cash flow coming in through alternative things. And so that was the genesis behind this alternative investing movement and the AIM Higher Academy was, okay, let's let people know that alternative investing doesn't just mean you can invest in a single family home because my goodness, it might take 300 of them to build the cash flow that you want, but it could be syndications. It could be mortgage notes. It could be private lending. It could be crypto. It could be warehouse space or farmland or, you know, ad, ad nauseum, right? You could keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, yep. And that every different type of alternative investing class will speak to different people based on their desires, their skill sets, you know, what they're looking for, how much time they have to throw at it, what other resources they have or need. And so I just thought people need to know, even the people who've been, say, a flipper forever or a single family landlord forever or in the multifamily space, they need to have access to start at ground zero, you know, up to higher level education on a bunch of other spaces because they might want to flip. I mean, they might want to flip their type of investing. So a flipper who started out in his 30s or her 30s flipping and now is in their 50s or 60s and they're exhausted, they might yeah. think, okay, I'm time. it's time for something more passive. And, you know, as a friend of mine said, I don't see myself ever retiring. I, I don't say I'm retired, although I'm retired from lawyer. I'm rewired. And that's a friend of mine, yep. Dave Steck, who says that. Don't be retired, be rewired. And so switch from an active W-2 job to building up your plan B. And I, I think lawyers, doctors, stockbrokers, all those glorified hourly workers need a plan B to create a passive uh, income stream for themselves while they're fishing or sleeping or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, kind of what you're what you're getting at, it's a, this whole space that we're talking about, too. Right. Which is like the and this gets into a whole conversation like what is the point of my podcast like what am i what is the message i'm trying to get across like i, I think what i've nailed is like i want to talk to different people within this whole space but like right. specifically the space that you're talking about is the alternative asset class investing space and it, it's it's a very it's interesting it maybe it's because i'm seeing it more but it seems as though it is becoming much more popular and we're starting to like understand it better as like a, a community, right? Like you start talking to yeah. doctors and lawyers five years ago, 10 years ago, when I started out, you know, you heard a lot of people, yeah, I just, I don't know, man, this thing, this job's going to kill me. I gotta, yeah. I gotta cut that. But there wasn't really like a, a higher level discussion about it. We just knew there was, I guess you could say a problem, right? Like you were, right. like you were saying, did you really believe 10 or 20 years ago I don't think the whole W two save it until save up right. forever until retirement is going to work. Yeah. Like eh, you probably were kind of it was on your mind, or at least for me. But now I'm like, okay, now I can yeah. pretty confidently say this isn't. And everybody says it right. Like this isn't going to work. We need right. to like understand finance in a subtly different way. Mm -hmm. You know the forces behind that. You can go on forever on you know the macroeconomic way that these things are like happening i i just saw the other day um on one of the one of the uh syndications that i invest in fundrise which is just an app mm -hmm. you know, it's like one of these big mega type uh syndication platforms you just log in mm -hmm. you can put 10k into it that one right. of the things they bought was this like portfolio of it was 200 or something single family homes in one area that they're gonna rent out and mm -hmm. i'm like Oh God! God bless the poor the people. Work. That the work, the work. Oh, no, thank well, you. Or imagine, imagine the folks that are renting those homes. So it's like these were dream. Yeah. These weren't like apartments. These were like 
this is my dream home kind of homes. And it's like, man, that isn't necessarily, at least to me, the way I would want to do it to be like perpetually renting, perpetually working paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's tough. And I, I think, you know, to your point of we're seeing more people talk about the alternative investing space. I mean, look at the volatility in the stock market, you know, and, but back in the day, I mean, if you went for financial advice, you went to your stockbroker, your CPA, or yeah. you know, maybe your lawyer, but usually not. Now you've got so many people who are not only in the alternative investing space, but people like you and, and now me as a baby person that way, taking that message out to other people to say, oh, my gosh, people need to know about this. I want to help people help themselves so that they're not relying on our government. They're not relying on somebody else to take care of them. They, they have more choices in life. And I think more people like you and like me and so many people out there are now taking the time to help educate people because we see that it is a better system for it's more sustainable for retirement. It's more sustainable for teaching your children how to you know, do something other than a W-2 job that they have two weeks of vacation a year and no control over their lifestyle. Yep. Yep. So I'm really glad that there's so many people out there teaching it. And I'm, I have a the abundance mindset in the sense that I don't ever think there can be too many people teaching it. So I never worry about, you know, the right people will find my message, right? People will find your message. I want more people out there helping other people because we don't, we're not taught that we know that this is an option. Our teachers don't teach us that parents don't even teach us that, you know? So, I mean, I didn't know the basics of like, of, personal fine well think about medicine you know like i mentioned the legal field and i find that juxtaposition always interesting because i think the lawyers have like a step up as far as like your standard will say like you know be a doctor lawyer engineer kind of thing right yeah. like the, the lawyers have a step up and then they they interact with multiple different fields and you know there's like yeah. a, a broad in scope it's like mm-hmm. but man these physicians dentists you know folks in healthcare specifically man all i knew yeah. in college in med school like all i knew was medicine and so you know these even just understanding the basics of personal finance like opened my mind up so much and well it's you know this level you're talking about you're well you're exactly right because i mean i grew up in a in a medical family i mean my grandfather was one of the founders of duke medical school my dad was a, a medical center my dad was a doctor my uncles and aunts were doctors And I was supposed to be a doctor all the way through about halfway through college. And I decided, no, I really like my economics class better. So I became an economics major and then went to law school. Um, And you're exactly right. I mean, as a doctor, you know a lot about healthcare and you make a lot of money that you have to invest. But nobody along the way teaches you how to invest in that. They teach you to call your stockbroker, call your CPA for tax things. and That's it. So I'm glad that I'm glad that's changing. Yeah. I mean, there's risks there too, right? Like you interact with the wrong folks, even, you know, you hear this term like fiduciary and it's like, well, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, what's the actual application of that term? Like technically they have to argue, you know, for your best interests or whatever the legal legal (laughs) definition is. Yeah. But it's like, but do they, how is that, you know, actually implemented in the real world? Well, and I I think one of the biggest things that I try to teach in my platform and when I speak for other people's groups is that whole due diligence thing. You know, you've got to do your due diligence. You got to vet the people, the property, the paperwork and the paperwork, by the way. Well, a lot of people don't do their due diligence at all or enough, but the paperwork is so shoddy so often. And if I had to say one thing to any real estate investor, small business owner, note investor, 
make sure your paperwork is rock solid because it'll save you or kill you in the end. Paperwork. Tell key. me a little. So that's that's uh, here. Before we get into that, I just want to do my brief sponsor break. Don't worry, it won't be a sponsor you're offended by. They don't actually I'm pay offended. us, but today drinking. My ultimate goal is to get. Uh, you know, this is bubbly, delicious uh, caffeinated nice. water. My ultimate goal is to get sponsored by like Monster or Rockstar. Oh, get a free there you go. All right. So today we're drinking a delightful bubbly. Um, so t- tell me more about that. I. What do you mean? The, uh, I get the, there's paperwork involved, but like, give me some specifics of where you see okay. some pitfalls with this. Well, okay, there's so many examples where to start. Let's take private lending. So when I go out and I loan my hard-earned money to, say, flippers, somebody's flipping a house, yeah. I want to make sure that I not only have a signed promissory note with all the right terms in it, I've got a mortgage or deed of trust that gets recorded that makes the property collateral, but I want an assignment of rents so that if they stop paying me and they start renting out the house, I get the rent before they do. I want to make sure it's an investment property so we don't run afoul of Dodd-Frank or the SAFE Act and whatever is in your state. And so my paperwork is rock solid because if that borrower stops paying me, I'm the first person in line to get the money and I can go take the property back. So many lenders, if they're not really careful on what they're doing, their paperwork is not complete. And so they send their money to, sometimes they don't even go through the closing agent, which they should always go through their trust account. They'll send money directly to a borrower. The borrower doesn't do what they say they're going to do. They stop paying the lender. The lender's trying to seek you know, a resolution, maybe get the property back. And then, oops, they realize either the paperwork never got signed, never mm-hmm. got recorded. They don't have the security interest in the property they think they had. And they're out. All they can do is sue the borrower. And by that time, the borrower is often bankrupt anyway. And it's a fifty dollars to $100,000 lawsuit to get a judgment. So I'll give you you another another example. Um, Some friends of mine, I won't say any names, although they've told me I can tell their story. But anyway. God bless. We wish these friends the best. (laughs) Yep. So they entered into about three different what they called loans with another friend of ours that everybody loved and thought was a great guy. This guy's in federal prison now, by the way. But um, they thought they were doing loans on very good projects, but they didn't really look at the paperwork. They trusted the guy on the paperwork. They never had their lawyer look at the paperwork, and it wasn't set up as loans at all. It was set up as joint ventures with joint venture agreements that were totally skewed in the quote-unquote borrower's favor. The borrower didn't give them any information. All this stuff happened. Long story short, The borrower, quote unquote, defaulted on a million dollars worth of loans from these people that weren't really loans the way they were set up. And so luckily, these people were uh, had the financial means and the chutzpah to go after him. And they ended up settling three or four years later. They got their money back, but they spent over 100,000 lawyers fees before they ever even got to a lawsuit. Other people that were taken advantage of by that same borrower were not so lucky, and they lost tons of money because they trusted him. They said, oh, he does this all the time. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to really make sure the paperwork's correct. They, I think I know what I'm doing. I give it a glance, and it, and it wasn't correct and got hosed. Um, for me, because I do loans, I've had two situations where it started to go bad, but my paperwork was so rock solid that I've never lost a dime in any loan I've ever done, and I've done I don't know, hundreds of them probably, Um, because if it starts to go bad, my collateral is always worth more than what I've loaned. So if I had to, I could always take it back. 
So far, I've had to start the foreclosure process twice just by filing one piece of paper in a court, and it scares them enough that they make it work out and I get paid. You see what I mean? But if my paperwork yes. wasn't solid, they could thumb their nose at me and walk away. But and they this can't. is all within pri you know, private lending, right? This is private lending. And, and there's yeah. all sorts of situations in partnerships, joint ventures, people who come together to do something for profit, but the paperwork isn't right. And one person either stops performing or doesn't pay or whatever it is. And the only thing that saves you is that you have rock solid paperwork to enforce whatever your deal was, whether that's buying and selling a house, entering into a partnership, a joint venture agreement, frankly, an estate, somebody can promise you the world, but if it's not in writing, you don't get it, you know, sure. that kind of thing. So paperwork it is very important. This gets to a question that I see across multiple industries. So I, I'm redesigning my website, my logo, and I interact with these web designers, right? And it's kind of the same example I gave before. Like, you know, having somebody who understands the big picture. So what would you recommend? Because, you know, you, you can go to a lawyer and they'll say, oh, you know, what about this, this phrase right here? But like, clearly it's more than that, you know, it's the big picture. So how, do, how as a consumer, right, of uh, legal resources, how do you go to a lawyer? How do you vet a lawyer and say, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about? Because sometimes, and, and I've had it, right? Like I've had back and forths with lawyers. I'm like, oh, he wants this, this, this. And then I'm like, yeah, the, the one, you know, this guy forgot to put, put my name on this paper. Like, geez, you know. Or, or yeah. some other higher level thing, like, well, did we consider, you know, doing this? It's like, oh, well, yeah, that is a good idea. How, how do you vet if you were a consumer and you knew nothing or you knew like a moderate amount about, uh, you know, legal resources? How would you vet a lawyer to make sure this gets done right? So I think there are two pieces of it. There's vetting the lawyer, but there's also, there is also taking some responsibility for paying attention to what's going on. So let's take um, let's take a, a, a partnership agreement. You, you and I decide to go in partnership together. We each have our own lawyer to make sure whatever form we do is right. Well, first of all, it's, it's on us to give the law the, the correct detailed information about the term of our deal, right? So many yeah. people will just say, well, I want a partnership, you know, with CAP. And they're not, they don't give them any yeah. details. So they get a boilerplate type of document that doesn't serve their purposes. So the onus is on us to make sure that we're communicating properly. Then once a document comes back, the onus comes back to us to make sure we actually read the document. I cannot tell you how many people I'd give them the draft document and they'd say, I'd say, have you read it? No, I trust you. No. And I would say, don't trust me. I, I mean, I'm yeah. thinking I'm doing what you want, but I might have misheard something. So and it's not so like a we, lie. Yeah, it's not a no, trust. No, it's not like a it's lie. Like a, mm -hmm. like a trust thing. It's like a big A miscommunication. Thing. Yeah, yes. the big picture yeah, thing. So a, us as yeah. the, we as the consumers have a responsibility to pay attention, to communicate well, and to make sure we're doing our part. That's number one, which often does not happen. Um, and I, let me back up here before I tell you how to vet the actual attorney. What I find is that, particularly with real estate investors, and I'm one of them, you know, we're cheap, cheap, cheap. As my friend John Hay, we're cheap. Yeah. And Which so isn't necessarily no, bad. Yeah. Right. It's not necessarily bad, except that we get cheap on the wrong things sometimes. Because I see the law as either using the shield of the law or the sword of the law. And if I use the shield of the law to protect myself and I'm proactive and I have an attorney review my paperwork and I'm, I'm, I'm doing my part, 
um, that is less tedious, less stressful, and less expensive than having to pull out the sword of the law and fight the battle when our deal falls apart and the paperwork isn't right. And now we're in a lawsuit and now it's stressful. And now we hate each other and one thing or another. And so if people would realize that there are things you should be cheap on and there are things you shouldn't be cheap on. And it's always cheaper yeah. to hire an attorney to help you up front than it is to help you when there's a problem. So, but to vetting the attorney, obviously you want to find an attorney who specializes in the practice area you're looking at. So let's say it's estate planning, which I did for many, many years. Um, you want to make sure that it's not just a real estate lawyer who knows how to draft a will, number one. It's got to be someone who understands estate planning. Depending on the size of your estate, if it's, let's say it's a taxable estate tax purposes, multi-millions, you want to make sure that attorney has worked with clients that have the same net worth or more than you do. I would ask these questions. I would say, well, what do you do to keep your skill sets up? You know, what publications do you subscribe to to keep abreast of the internal revenue code changes? What types of conferences do you go to? Uh, what's your highest net worth client? What types of documents do you pre uh, prepare on a regular basis? Do you prepare the same template for everyone or do you custom draft it based on my specific needs? You see what I mean? Because there are a lot of yeah. what I call trust mills out there that mm -hmm. you come in yeah. and they say, oh, you're a $10 million net worth person. Here's your trust document. Well, what's okay, the that's just what's the you know. basics of like a trust? Because uh, I really... I have not looked into this in depth. What's yeah. like, how does a trust work? Or like, what is that? How is that structured? It, there are lots of different types of trust for lots of different purposes. So I, I'm going to give you an example, but not in uh, a broad definition. So it's ironic to me because we use a trust when we don't trust someone. <laughs> we don't trust the IRS. We don't trust our kids not to spend the money frivolously. We don't trust sure. somebody. So I think that's kind of ironic. But anyway, a trust is, you think of it, it's it's a contract. A trust is just a between right. the person who sets up the trust, the grantor, and the person who manages the trust, the trustee for the benefit of the so a very standard trust like in estate planning is a trust we call a revocable living trust or a living trust for short uh, that is designed for a number of reasons but primarily to avoid the probate process when we die so we're not going to court we're not paying probate fees we're not having all those deadlines and things that stretch out the process for years and so in that type of trust we would Draft, have a lawyer draft a trust. So you've got however many pages is in your trust. And what makes that trust effective is actually transferring assets to the trustee of that trust. So my estate planning trust, my revocable living trust, I am the grantor, the person who set it up. I am the trustee, the person who manages it, and I am the beneficiary during my lifetime. And so instead of my assets being in the name of Mary Hart, which makes something go through my will and go through probate, my assets are now titled in the name of Mary Hart as trustee of the Mary Hart Trust, whatever I call it. Got That's it. not what I call Got it because it. it's okay. anonymous. But um, and so now when I die, everything that's held in that revocable living trust, my successor trustee, which is my brother-in-law right now, he just reads what I wrote and distributes the assets the way I said it to do it. Nobody has to go to the courthouse. Nobody has to file a will. Nobody has to yeah. do an inventory, do an annual accounting, do all that stuff. My trustee just says, oh, Mary said this should go to her three boys or to her husband or whatever, and does it. So it's private, it's quicker, it's cheaper when you die. It's a little more expensive to set up during life. But that particular type of trust is designed to make things flow better. We can use it to avoid or minimize estate taxes. We can do all those same things in a will or a trust. 
excuse me, it has its purposes. If I'm a real estate investor and I'm buying 200 single family homes and I don't want to look like a big fish on the register of deeds, somebody could come find out, oh, Mary Hart owns 200 houses. Let's sue her for some random thing because she'll settle with sure. us, right? I might own each of those houses in a what we call a land trust. Each house is owned and titled in a different name. So I might own 200 of them and I'm the beneficiary of each of those land trusts, but nobody knows that. Nobody knows that I've got 200 houses. They don't even know I have one because my name is not on the record. The one, two, three trust, the four, five, six trust, the eight, nine, whatever it is, is the name on the public record. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So I'm preserving and, anonymity. And that, if that makes what, sense. Sorry. What's the name of the person that manages the trust again? The, the trustee, the trustee, the trustee. So that, and that mm -hmm. could be uh, in your case, you said, you know, that's you, you manage your own trust for my but, estate planning trust. Yeah. For your estate mm -hmm. planning. Um, and, but you could have that, I guess, be anybody, right? It sure. doesn't even, he said it goes yeah. on to be your brother after you die. Or whoever. Then, you know, it could be a corporation, it. you know, it could be a yeah. trust company. Then, you know, just pick the right person that will be responsible and do what you want them to do. Yeah. yeah. But there are many types of trust. There are irrevocable trusts for actual creditor protection where you're giving your assets away during life to a trust that maybe will ultimately benefit your kids or for... Um, for estate tax purposes, you're trying to divest yourself of some assets before they increase in value. Like I said, there are so many types of trusts. They're charitable trusts. They're trusts to protect your spouse or children from being what we call a spendthrift, spending the money frivolously after your death. They're, they're just a lot of different types of trusts. So that's, that's something that I teach for like two days. I can teach on that subject for two days. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I'm sure you've had many a lecture in yeah. law school on that exact one. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's why I think that the consulting, why well, I like to do the consulting because we it's not like we have an hour to figure out your whole situation. We sit down and yeah. dig down deep into it and say, all right, well, maybe you need a few land trusts or maybe you need some personal property trust to own your boat or your promissory notes or whatever. And then yeah. and you have to have an LLC as the beneficiary of these trusts. And then all that flows up to your estate planning trust. It's just, you know. That's hard to figure out in an hour. Yeah, and understanding these tools, you know, it's an education for the, the consumer as well. You know, mm -hmm. like you mentioned yeah. with understanding and not trusting your lawyer, just right. reading the documents, right? It's like, yeah. well, I think part of the motivation of they say, oh, I trust you. Whatever you put is good. It's like they just kind of don't want to have to deal with it. And yeah. in the back of – I mean I've done that before, right, where I'm like, eh, it's fine – but in the back of my mind, I'm like, eh, I just don't want to have to think about yeah. it. I don't want to have to deal with it. But this, you know, there's certain things that the benefit and maybe getting a little excited about it. Maybe that's what we do in this, this like podcast is to say, hey, stuff is actually kind of cool because yeah. what does it, it really cool. have to do with? It has to do with like your life. It has to do with your children. It has to do with like, you know, this is like uh, very, like I said, meta and, and thinking about yeah planning on down the line, like what do you want to pass yeah. on? And so and if you frame it like that, like an education, yeah. like, dude, yeah, I mm -hmm. want to know about this stuff, you know? And uh, we have our, Ben and I is my partner um, with Investing Storage, which we're actually rebranding right now as Lantern Light Capital. Ben's my partner with Lantern Light. And, you know, we joke, he's like our in-house counsel, but mm -hmm. he's our in-house counsel because he's not a lawyer. Um, but, you know, he, 
he is very diligent with this stuff and he understands yeah. that big picture. And, you know, if I have a question like, why is the lawyer, why, why are we doing this little things? Oh, this, you know, this reason, this reason, yeah. because of this, why do we have, you know, we have two LLCs for each, um, yeah. each self storage we buy. And mm -hmm. there's like a whole explanation for that. Like oh, yeah. one owns the land, I one understand. operates a business is my guess. <laughs> so all of that, you know, making sure all the pieces, I, I think it's fascinating because to me, it's a giant puzzle and making sure yeah. all those pieces interlock right and and making sure that that puzzle stays intact after your death or your disability for your children your charities whatever it is and you know you and i, I mentioned this before our call i mean i i've called it for years my your ultimate love letter write your ultimate letter one day i'm going to write a book about that but write your ultimate love letter because the nicest thing you can do for your loved ones or your favorite causes is make sure that everything goes smoothly. If something happens to you, you've worked so hard to build up all this wealth and this, you know, this great life that you have, and then boom, it can be gone in a split second. And you're going to either leave your family in chaos and make yeah. them have to set aside their grief while they're dealing with all this issue or, or do yeah. it, set it up so that they can about the business of grieving and getting over whatever happened in a much less stressful way. So to me, it's the nicest yeah. gift you can give your you, loved you ones. You hear about like, you hear about folks that you know, very, very high net worth individuals, right? And they, mm -hmm. you know, they're worth, you know, a hundred million or five, uh, a billion, and they're going to leave like a million to their kids. <laughs> and like it, it I, I kind of think about that sometimes. I'm like, I wonder what the motivation is there. I wonder why. And, and my guess would be that, you know, you, they spent their whole life building all, all the assets and building all these things, but they didn't necessarily think about, you know, how to take what you've built and pass that down in the right way. Right. And mm -hmm. it gets back to this, you know, trust fund baby or, you know, surgeon, spoiled surgeon's kid. That's not what you want. Right. And yeah. I, don't think the solution to that is, oh, make a billion dollars and right. then just not give any to your kids. Like, well, then what, right. what exactly What'd you work is so it hard the, for? Yeah, you know, just a thrill of the chase or like, uh, which is yeah. a thing in itself, not to downplay that, but like, well, why, you know, why are you doing this? Even just being like reflective on, okay, how do I take these assets, this money and turn it into something special or right. uh, the way I like to frame it? is I, I like to think of it as like an ax, right? Like you're a, you're about to, I think of the Oregon trail. And so in the game, you had it like cross the United States and there's this big journey and you had to bring all these supplies and some supplies would run out, some supplies would break, but you could bring an ax and that ax you got to take care of because it can chop down trees and it can, mm -hmm. it can be used to do so many things. It's a tool, right? And right. so if you take care of this ax, it can, make more axes, right? It can chop down more trees and you can use it to build more. Or if you just start chopping down trees and let it go dull and then break the handle and don't build a new one, well, then you've used up your tool and, you know, you yeah. have nothing left. And like, that's how I have started to kind of frame my assets and, you know, the mm -hmm. wealth that you have is like, how can I make this a, a tool that my family, my kids, you know, can use and be something that isn't just yeah, throwing the money away and I need to make oh, yeah. a bunch of spendthrift trusts or yeah. whatever you yeah. call it. Yeah. Like, That's I what don't you call necessarily it. want to revert to a spendthrift yeah. trust because I know my kid's going to buy like seven Ferraris if I, yeah. <laughs> well, I think obviously part of it is, is attempting to steward your, your children as they grow up and teach them <laughs> the value of money and, 
and how not to be a spendthrift. But that, you, that's not always controllable. Even the best parent who tries to teach that, you, you, it's like leading the horse to water and they don't drink. My three adult children who are 23, 28, and almost 31 are just now starting to say, hey, mom, I want to learn. And I've been trying to get them to learn for years, right? Sure. And, but I think that that whole thing about people not wanting to leave a big pile of money to their kids comes down to, and I can't remember who said it, but something, somebody said, okay, it's shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Have you ever heard that? It's like the I've grandparent before, yeah. has no money and they work really hard all their life and they don't want their kids to suffer the way they did. So they provide everything to their children who never learn how to, you know, make the money. And so they blow through it all during their lifetime and they leave the next generation back to shirt sleeve, something like that. And I yeah, think that there yeah. are ways to set up an estate plan that you can provide opportunities for your children without just handing them a big pile of money. And, you know, one of the things that my parents did, and I've, I've lost four parents in the last five years because both my mm -hmm. parents got remarried. Yeah. And, so, yeah. but one of the nicest thing that my mom and stepfather did, they had a large estate and they set aside about, you know, a huge portion of it to charity. We, we were all grown up and doing fine. They set aside a part to charity that each of us gets our own little donor advised fund. So it's not our money to go be a spendthrift with, but it allows us to be philanthropists from day one. You know, regardless of how much we can afford to give, there is now a fund sitting there the Mary Hart donor advised fund with a community foundation that I can look at something and say, you know, send them a thousand bucks or send them $10,000 or whatever. Yeah. What a lovely thing to do. If you have too much wealth that you don't want to just give it all to your children, we'll set it up so they can be philanthropists and you're benefiting charities, but they get to choose which charities, you know, that sort of thing. There are all sorts of options. And you can kind of, even just in that act, you know, picking a charity, it can be, Know, something interesting in itself because mm -hmm. there's a whole broad spectrum of charities right some right. better than others some more ethical than others and like mm -hmm. just kind of understanding that you know could mm. change somebody's mind too it's and, like and each child gets to it. follow their passion like you know i have uh, one brother who's big into conservation of land i like to champion uh food security and and the family farmer and things like that. So that might be what I might lean towards and somebody else wants to do animals, you know, animal welfare or whatever. Um, it's just nice that now we can each choose our own path. And it was helped along the way by my parents' estate plan. So that was right. nice. I, I got one more question that just kind of came to my mind for you. So, you know, like there's a lot of different alternative asset classes, right? You mentioned you know, private lending, which, you know, can, that could be somewhat complex, like you're saying. What about getting into, you know, these bigger syndications? I interact mm -hmm. with a lot of folks that are dealing with pretty well-experienced yeah. syndicators. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend for anybody that's, you know, looking at a syndicator or, and, you know, even me, right? Like I'll be raising money shortly. Yeah. And how would you tell my potential investors to vet me? Yeah. So I think anytime you're vetting someone, it's the person, the paperwork, and whatever the underlying asset is right to the extent you can so with the syndication i mean the questions and i'm in three or four of them right now the questions that i always want to ask is first of all what's the syndicator's experience right is this their very first syndication if it is who mentors them who is their team do they have more experienced people on the team even though they might be the gp the general partner who is on the team um I would want my lawyer to review the private placement memorandum, you know, all that stuff. 
to look at, make sure the paperwork is set up correctly. And I want to know, okay, let's say you're syndicating multifamily. What's your, what's your background in multifamily? What makes you know how to run multifamily to do that value add or whatever it is you're doing? So just like anytime you vet anything, it's okay. And we actually have a duty, I think, to ask the hard questions. And if a syndicator pushes back when you ask questions, I wouldn't use that. I wouldn't go with that syndicator because they should be an open, transparent book about, hey, here's who I am. Here are my weaknesses yeah. and here's what I've done to mitigate my weaknesses. Here are my strengths and why I'm so good at it. And here's the protection to you. This is what we're doing to protect you. Now, syndications don't have collateral for the limited partners. Um, so I would want to also make sure, okay, if you're, let's say it's a lending fund, you're syndicating a lending fund. I want to make sure that the fund itself has the right collateral. Does the fund have a first lien position on these properties or not? You know what I mean? So I would want the, the syndicator to answer some detailed questions about the assets in the fund, the paperwork in the fund, the syndicator's experience, the syndicator's team, their weaknesses yeah. and their strengths. That's what I would I, want. That's, yeah, I, I think that's huge. You know, And like I, I have this example right along those lines, which is I'm very – passionate well about a lot of aspects of self storage management and you know, one of them i really find where you can kind of almost dig into whether whether these guys kind of know what they're doing if you will is is the marketing of a facility cuz mm -hmm. once you get a facility up and running and you've hit steady state just you know you're at your 90% occupancy which is kind of your goal well from there you know your your customer acquisition your funnel and like your the amount of customers that are leaving you know your inbound and outbound is what determines you know your price and how where your steady state state sits and you know I, I've found you talk to some of these guys you're like well tell me you know how you're marketing this facility and you kind of you get two types of answers one you might get oh we have the best digital marketer there is and that may be true and that makes it a little harder but it's like well you know what makes them so good because my brother's a digital marketer and you know he'll tell you that that industry is full of, of bullshitters basically right. everybody's the <laughs> yeah. you know the guru the ninja the best in the mm -hmm. world and it's like okay so you got this great marketer but like well tell me how you know like why your marketer is determining to spend X amount on your pay-per-click campaign or how much are you spending on organic type content outreach? And, you know, are you, what are you doing from the social media? Like, are you paying for that? Do you think that's important? You know, or are you just blasting out, you know, really focusing on local SEO? Do you have like another drip campaign that you're running on the back end? you know, to like keep cut, there's just so many, so much complexity to that answer. And you can similarly to being a doctor, like I can tell when I talk to a doctor within 30 seconds if this guy knows what he's talking about. Right. But sometimes there's just subtle things he's saying. You're like, I, this guy's saying the right words, but his context is just slightly off. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like if the doctor told me the sodiums aren't looking very good, like I'd be like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's not how you say it. You know, yeah. like this sodium's got, this guy's sodium is low. That's yeah. how you'd say it. Yeah. But if you said the well, sodiums I, aren't good, like. No, and I want to work with people who don't have any ego in the game. And they have to be confident, but not arrogant, right? Because arrogant people get themselves in trouble because they don't ask for help soon enough or they don't think they need help, right? So when I'm talking to people, you can get a sense. Is this person so full of himself or herself that they would never ask for help or they think they're the, the be all to end all and they know everything? If so, I don't care what their track record is. I don't want to work with them. 
because they're not going to admit it when they need help. And all of us need help yeah. sometimes, right? We all need help. If we were all perfect at everything, what a world that would be, but it's not the case, right? And it gets to the learning too. It's like, yeah. you know, that legal, going back to the legal thing, you know, l reading the legal documents that you get, like you're going to learn a lot. You read a contract and yeah. or you read the OM and it's like, whoa, that's, I didn't know about yeah. this specific concept with it, you know, structuring mm -hmm. a syndication. Like, I guess these guys are addressing the specific issue that right. can happen in this random use case. Like, wow, okay, sure. Maybe I should bring that up to my lawyer. Do Is this something that we need or, you know? And yeah. So you look at it from a standpoint of like learning and experience. And I think it, mm -hmm. I think it can be fun. You know, how do we make yeah. the law fun? <laughs> you know? And, and I don't uh, mind if someone's new. We all started somewhere. We all started. I don't want, that's not an automatic black mark against somebody just because it's their first time. But true. I'm going to dig a lot deeper into the people they surround themselves with. And I think it was Henry Ford or somebody who, somebody said, well, you know, but you don't have such and such education or you don't know all this. And he's like, well, I don't need to because I'm, I've got these people on my team. And if I need to know what the War of 1812 was about, I call my historian and find out. <laughs> I don't need to keep that fact in my head, you know, whatever yeah. it is. And I think yeah. that's key. If someone's new, don't necessarily knock them out automatically. Everything is a calculated risk, right? So find out what would mitigate the risk of that person being new. Who surrounds them and, and where did they learn and who's there to support them? So. Sure. Yeah. yeah. No, I love it. I think uh, – I think there's a lot of folks out that could, uh, you know, use your guidance and, um, <laughs> Thank you. yeah, I think it's, I think what you're doing is awesome. Well, as we wrap up here, we'll get to the end. So we have okay. two sections left. I think you're going to enjoy okay. them both and then we'll <laughs> uh, let you kind of just talk to, talk to our listeners. So sure. number one, we have the bill and cap rapid fire Four. bill is my co-host, by the way, he does the, uh, the kind of multifamily, single family side of things. I do the self storage mm -hmm. side. So the rapid okay. fire Four. you have 30 seconds to answer each question. Oh, no. Okay. This is, we do this every episode. All right. Some of them are the same. So question number one, are you ready? I'm ready. I'm leaning All forward. Right. I'm ready. Number one, <laughs> give us one bit of advice, but serious heartfelt advice. Okay. Um, your attitude and your mindset are almost everything, certainly very critical. A bad attitude or mindset can make a good thing bad, and a good attitude or mindset can make a bad thing good. And so you can't always control what happens to you. And if something bad happens, you can choose to be bitter or better. Choose better every time. There you go. I like it. That's super good. <laughs> That's super good. All right. Question number two. This is one that I've kind of played around with a little bit. Uh, the question's digging, and I've modified it. So hopefully okay. hopefully it makes sense. So okay. question number two, do you think your macroeconomic, technological, and geopolitical views of the world have influenced your investing strategies? And if so, how? Well, I'd probably say no for me personally, certainly not geopolitical. I mean, I count on my stockbroker for my stock portfolio for that part of it for things that are more global and whatnot. But in my active investing, I don't really look so much at politics or geopolitics. I will look at what's going on in sort of macroeconomics or even, you know, what's going on with inflation, what's going on in the markets, yeah. things like that. I really dislike politics as a whole. That's just sort of who I am. I think, you know, they just want to argue all the time. And so I try not to let politics sway it. I just try to use common sense. So I would have to say yes to some of those and no to others. 
Got it. Got it. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I question up and I'm, I think about, you know, the world and, and kind of some of the questions we get at, which are like, what does the world hold for us in, you know, 10 years, 20 years for our children? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, we touched on some of these things. I think times the, the overall structure of how to save money, how to make money, you know, is changing. And I, yeah. you know, try to wrap my head around that picture sometimes. And uh, I guess it's something that you kind of keep, keep thinking about yeah. and like, how do we pass along wealth to our children and mm -hmm. trying to understand these things is, well, it's an interesting mystery. Yeah. And, um, and I guess to extent I do pay attention to that because that's what got me into alternative investing in the first place. Thinking yeah. you can't rely on social security when you're older to live the lifestyle you want to live. Is it even going to be there? Is it going to be enough? <laughs> you know, whatever. You can't yeah. save your way to retirement. So yes, I mean, here's, I guess I do your, think about. Here's your like $5 social security check. Don't yeah, exactly. Exactly. Enjoy. Um, question number three, mm -hmm. what is the bit of advice that you ever received? I would say that somebody who told me that all debt is bad. I think they're different kinds of debt, right? So consumer debt. Yeah, that could be bad because it's not moving yep. the needle forward at all. Leverage debt. If it's taken responsibly and reasonably with calculated risk, that is not bad debt, right? You can move the needle forward a lot quicker with, with debt. You can get into commercial yeah. projects with debt. You can buy your first single family home with debt, you know, in, in terms of your investment. So I think that's the, that all debt is bad is bad advice. Yeah. Who's the, who's the guy? Not, uh, I'm thinking oh, Dave Ramsey. Ramsey. Dave Ramsey, <laughs> not Gordon Ramsey. He no, Gordon will help you. But yeah, that's that's kind of the the Dave Ramsey kind of mindset, right? And I think yeah. you know, for some folks, that is reasonable. Like, okay, it, you're because some people just don't want to deal with any of this stuff, right? They just want to yeah. pay everything off and they just want to be done. But I think mm -hmm. there's a, a, another a group of people that are like, hey, you know, I want to yeah. dig a little more into this. I don't yeah. just want to pay off all my mortgages, have no debt, no credit card, blah blah blah, right. and just right. you know invest. Um, yeah. and I think, you know, it's up to you what you want to do. Yeah, um, so yeah it's definitely, I agree. A, definitely a personal risk tolerance, but you know, you've got a hundred thousand dollars. Do you buy $100,000 house if you can even find one, or do you put 20,000 down on five houses with leveraged debt that then you refinance, you know? So I think it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it depends, but I think the, the edict, the debt of every kind is bad is bad advice. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Don't listen to Gramsci. <laughs> yeah, Dave Ramsey. Um, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, oh, right. Gordon, I got it. Number four. Well, maybe listen to Gordon Ramsey about cooking. Yeah, All right, I number like Gordon four. Ramsey. Yeah, I know, me too. <laughs> number four. What asset classes are you interested in investing in, but you haven't yet? Yeah, so I am actually in the process ironically enough, of learning the self-storage industry and was just in the process of underwriting with some other people, a huge potential $20 million development deal that we've just pulled the plug on. We're not going to do it uh, for a number of reasons, but I've wanted to do self-storage for a while. And, and now I, I feel like at almost age 60, I'm growing up enough to take on some of these bigger projects. So, you know, self-storage is probably where I'm trying to go, I think now. So, but yeah. Funny I look you at, I look, that. <laughs> yeah, funny. I should mention that. And, and really, you know, yeah, this has been in the works for probably about a year now. Haven't bought anything yet. Haven't built anything yet because I, I do take calculated risks. So I needed to learn the industry first and I'm still in the process of that. I'm learning how to underwrite and analyze um, deals yep. and whether it's value add or conversion or development, I'm looking at all three possibilities. I haven't found the deal to buy yet because I think prices still haven't matched what's going on with the cost of debt 
And mm-hmm. so yeah. sellers are still a little optimistic, in my opinion, on, and it makes it less affordable for value at play with interest rates yeah. as high as they are. So, yeah. so I'm working yeah. on that. I'm going down to the storage conference in New Orleans um, in a week or so. Nice. And yeah. So that'll be my first awesome. storage conference. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah, storage is great. I yeah, it's an interesting. You know, I think some of these sellers gotta kind of understand with you know set. Yeah. If you're getting dead at seven percent, it's like man, a five percent cap rate like, can't do a five cap. Just, yeah, y- yeah, you just yeah. can't. Um, yeah. All right. Well, you survived the uh, rapid fire four. Well, and thank you. Now for the final section, the bill and cap deal proposal. So oh, yes, this every show. This is a kind of lighthearted but serious proposal, okay. and it can be anything. Pitch me any deal. If it's just, you know, to the, I guess, technically a transaction on your, you know, web store to buy one of your hats, I guess that counts as well. Or, you know, you have a multi-million dollar uh, storage deal and you want to, like, partner right now. What would it take live on the air to partner with you on a deal? Well, first I'd have to know who you are as people. This is our first interaction. So far, so good, um, because I like to work with the fewer betters and excuse my language, but not the masses of asses. So I want good people on my Solid. team. Yeah. I would want to know what the parameters of the deal are. So I would do my due diligence on the deal. I think it's very important that we have the same goals for the deal. So what are your proposed exit strategies for this deal? What's the timeline? You know, how do you want to manage it? How do you want to hold it? Because most partnerships and deals blow up when people are not on the same page with that type of stuff and they never talked about it ahead of time. I would want to know the paperwork involved and make sure you're okay with having very complete, not necessarily complex, but complete paperwork at the beginning of the deal where we never know if it falls apart, who's going to be the bad guy and who's going to be the good guy. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's basically it. It's the normal due diligence stuff, you know, and if I'm, if we're putting money in or we're supposed to put money in, I probably want to know that you actually have money in your bank account that you can follow through on your promises. You know what I mean? I'd want to know that you're, um, and if you're a person who's bringing the skill set and not the money, that's fine. Then I want to make sure you have the skill set that I'm lacking. So normal due diligence, Yeah. right? Yeah. And I need a good gut feeling. Yeah, the, this concept of due diligence is not – well, maybe there's some standard to it, but I've said this before. Yeah. There is no like ISO standard for what due diligence mm-hmm. entails. No, and I, I think you know, part, back to that best advice question and, uh, relating to this is trust your gut. And when I was younger, I didn't trust my gut. And so many times I had a, a feeling, a bad feeling, and I got talked out of it, and I worked with people that I really had a weird feeling about. And every yeah. time it turned out there was a reason I had that bad feeling, even though I couldn't put my finger on it at the time. So now if somebody came to me to do a deal and I felt like they were too arrogant or there was something that just made me, mm, I just don't know, I wouldn't do it. Even if it had big yeah. numbers, I'd walk away because I trust my gut now, which yeah. I didn't before yeah, when I was younger. Yep. Yeah. But you got to learn too, you know. I mean, yeah. some of some of the deals that I think weren't the best that involved in, like, well, I learned a ton from them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I think it gets to really thinking about like how much you're putting into something. What is the risk? Your overall big picture. And mm-hmm. but yeah, that trust your gut thing. Yeah. You, kinda, you get a feel for people yeah. sometimes. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. And I, mean, I think calculated risk. We all need to do that to get out of our comfort zone and move the needle forward. Everybody needs yeah. to take calculated risk. But the people who just go willy nilly and take risks without the due diligence, I think they're just waiting for the, the other shoe to drop. And sometimes yeah. those yeah. learning experiences are mighty expensive tuition. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, 
Mary, it was uh, it was great having you on the show. I think you're you just got oh, so much cool stuff. I, oh, that's okay. You, that's my internet or yours, but yeah, it's all good. It was go. it was great having you on the show. I, I think you. a lot of a lot of really cool stuff you're doing. Maybe I'll Thank stop you. by the farm. You said it's in Kentucky. It's in Kentucky in a little town called Gravel Switch. Doesn't even have a stoplight. Not a single one. Oh my gosh, that's mm-hmm. awesome. Well. Yep. How can a uh, couple last things? How can our audience support you? What is the best way to contact sure. you? And is there anything you know they can bring to you? Yeah. Um, well, the way to contact me is the easiest. So you can email me at Mary Hart, M A R Y H A R T, at alternativeinvestingmovement.com or at Mary Hart 63 at iCloud.com if you don't want to type the big oh. email address. Either one works. My website, if you want to check out the membership platform or know of somebody that we might be able to help, that's just www.alternativeinvestingmovement.com. And then how people can help me. You got a great deal on a storage facility, you know, or development opportunity, let me know. Otherwise, um, help me get the word out about our um, Aim Higher Academy so that we can help more people find their, their, their time freedom, their financial freedom, and create their legacy, which I think is the yeah. ultimate love letter. So I like it. I love what you're doing. Mary, thanks so much. It was great to have you.